going to move into our fifth topic, which I'd like to cover most of today. Um, It's certainly less controversial um, than the preceding ones, I think. Um, you know, talking about uh, about Begin, talking about um, the the Langer affair, topics like that were more controversial than this one. But it's still one which is very important to look at, and there are controversies involved. So we get that that piece of it as well. Um, and this is the Aliyah of Ethiopian Jewry. First in 1984 in Operation Moses, and then seven years later in Operation Solomon, although they did not all get to go that way, and there's still those, I think, who are, who are trying to make it. But the, uh, the Aliyah of Ethiopian Jewry, it has to start with source number 10. Source number 10 comes from a book called Sefer Eldad Hadani. Literally, the book of Eldad from Dan. Dan, of course, being one of the twelve biblical tribes. Dan is the son of Jacob. And this book is written in the ninth century. Eldad claims that he comes from a tribe of Jews who are living in Ethiopia. Take a look at source number 10, which is a translation of part of his origin story, of how they ended up there. Actually, before we read it, source number 10, I'll give you some of the background that has to precede it. The Jews live, I mentioned before, the period of the Shofim, the period of the judges. They... um, after the Jews enter the land of Israel, let's start from there. The Jews enter the land and live under the authority of Joshua for 28 years, until Joshua passes away. After that, you have the period of judges, about 400 years. They, uh, some of the judges you may have heard of, uh, Devorah is one, Shimshon Samson is, uh, is another one. At the end of that period of time, the prophet Shmuel coronates first Shaul HaMelech, King Saul, and then David Melech, King David. David has a son by the name of Shlomo, Solomon. Solomon has a son. Now we're going back to a period 2,900 to 3,000 years ago is the general assumption of historians. So you're talking about roughly 900 to 1,000 years before the Common Era. Solomon has a son whose name is Rechavah, who takes over for him. Rechavam is not the wisest of all men. Whatever Solomon was, Rechavam doesn't have it. There's a rebellion by, by a, a whole group within the nation. It ends up being all of the tribes living north of Jerusalem. Because his taxes are too high. Rechavam takes counsel first with his elder advisors. And they say, go easy on them. But then he takes counsel with a younger group of advisors who say, you have all the power, you should fight. If they have a problem with your taxes, you should raise the taxes. Well, we all know how that story ends. The the way the story ends in this particular case is that the tribes living north of Jerusalem, which is 10 out of the 12 roughly, separate off. They're led by a man by the name of Yeruvam. So they rhyme. Yeruvam in the north, Rechavam in the south. Yeruvam declares a breakaway. He builds his own temples so the Jews won't go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore and actually sets up roadblocks to keep people from traveling south to the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom becomes known as Yehuda, Judea. The northern kingdom becomes known as Yisrael, Israel. And that's the way it continues 
until the Assyrians invade and conquer the northern kingdom and exile those ten tribes. Now, I said before, it's not precisely ten tribes. And the reason I say that is because the ten tribes of the north, well, the, the two tribes in the south are theoretically Judah and Benjamin. However, Judah has within it cities that are owned by the tribe of Shimon, so you have some of Shimon who seems to be mixed into Judah. And then, of course, you have Levites who are living all around the land. So there are Levites also who are there in, uh, in the south. Nonetheless, it's become convenient to say ten tribes versus two tribes. But, the, uh, but that's all background. The story of the tribe of Dun, according to their origin story represented here by, by, by Eldad Adani's book, um, is that the tribe of Dun were great warriors back in the day. And Yeruvam, separating off the northern kingdom, wants them on his side to do battle against the southern kingdom. And they want no part of it. They say, we, we don't want to be brought into this to fight other Jews. So instead, they leave. So take a look at source number 10. The tribe of Dun dedicated themselves to battle Yeravam. They said, we're not willing to support him in his battle against the other Jews. We're going to go to war against him instead. God saw their intent was good, and he saved them from bloodshed. The entire tribe of Dun announced, flee, sons of Dun, and leave Israel and go to Egypt. But their leaders took counsel and said, But the Torah of Moses said, You shall not return this way again. How should we descend to Egypt? There's actually a biblical verse, three of them, that say that we are never going to go back to live in Egypt. So they say, Well, we can't do that. God gave them a good spirit, and the Danites ascended to Nachal Kishon, and traveled by camel, and camped until they reached Ethiopia. They went further. They found a good and rich land, a spacious land, a land of gardens and orchards and fields and vineyards, and the Ethiopians would not let them live with them until they made a covenant with them, for they feared them. The Ethiopians are afraid that there will be an attack by the tribe of Dun, and so they say, you can only stay here if you're willing to make a treaty with us, which they did. The, uh, the Ethiopians pay tribute to the Danites. So it envisions this tribe of Jews moving south to Ethiopia and basically taking over. So now the locals will pay tribute to us. And then as the story continues, he describes more tribes that actually came south as well, but they were more militant and they started fights with the locals. And he has this whole, uh, this whole story. More Jewish tribes, correct. So you have Jews living in Ethiopia as the, these, uh, these tribes who separated off. They're not exiled then when the ten northern tribes are exiled because they're already gone. Right? They're not conquered by the Assyrians. They're living off in this land already before. Now, how trustworthy is this book? Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra comes along another 150 or so years later. And in a completely different context, he's talking about a story in the Chumash regarding Moses. If you remember the story of Miriam and Moses, in which Miriam and Aaron are talking, and Miriam says some things about Moses, and about a Ishak Hushit who he married. Ishak Hushit literally means an Ethiopian woman. So this raises a question. Miriam is talking about an Ethiopian woman who Moses married. 
We know nothing about Moses having an Ethiopian wife at all. Who is Moses' wife? Tzipporah. Where is Tzipporah from? Midian. Midian is right next door to Israel. Midian is not Ethiopia. So I don't understand. What is this reference to a wife from Ethiopia? So various approaches are suggested in the commentaries as to what this is talking about. And here, Ibn Ezra says, in number 11, this Tzipporah, who he marries in the second chapter of the book of Exodus, the one who's from Midian, this Tzipporah was the Ishak Kushit mentioned later in the Torah. They're one and the same person. Don't get hung up on it. The, um, yeah, and there are various commentaries that take this approach. They say maybe she had very dark skin, and therefore it was like she was from Africa. And then he continues to say, Do not trust that which is recorded in the book of Chronicles of Moses. And he's talking here about a work which suggests that you know, we have missing years for the life of Moses. He flees Egypt when he's either 13 or 20 years old. And he goes straight to Midian, that we know. But then the next time he shows up, he's 80. We're missing 60 years of Moses' life. What happened all that time? He's just being a shepherd. So maybe, you know, it's a, it's a living. They, uh, however, there are works which suggest that actually he went to Ethiopia in that interim period, and that's where he met the Ishakushit. That's where he married this Ethiopian woman. So he says, don't trust that. And then even Ezra says the point that's relevant for us. He says, I'll provide a principle. Any book not recorded by the prophets or by the sages via received tradition is not reliable and may contain items which, and contain items which contradict accurate information. This is true for Sefer Zubavel, Sefer Eldad Hadani, and the like. The book of Eldad Hadani, he says, is not reliable. He is not buying the idea that a Jewish tribe went south to Ethiopia and thrived and became powerful there. What would you say, looking at this story that Eldad Adani tells in the 9th century, reporting about events which, following the chronology, would have been 1,800 years before his time? Right? Because it would have to go all the way back to the time of Rechavah and Yerubah. He's reporting events from 1,800 years before his time about a Jewish tribe that left Israel because they didn't want to get involved in this war between the tribes, and instead they went south and found themselves a beautiful land in Ethiopia. They, uh, what, what would you say about such a story? Moish? Well, I, it's sort of a question and an answer. Does um, Eldad Ali say anything about the big Russian about uh, the Queen of Bakachva? Right, so his. The trial with Shlomo and returning with the retinue of the Jew of Master Right, so he does not. The other story, much more. He does not use that. Meaning, we do have a story, it's found in the 10th chapter in Kings 1 in Malachim Aleph, about the Queen of Sheba, Malkat Sheva, coming to visit Solomon. Because she has heard the stories of his wisdom, and she has all these questions and riddles that she asks him, and he's brilliant and wonderful, and she goes back home and she sends spoils and wealth to, uh, to this Jewish kingdom, because she's so impressed by, uh, by King Solomon. There is no biblical record of her having a child with Solomon whatsoever. But indeed, some have wanted to say, well, maybe there was a child, and that's where these uh, Ethiopian Jews came from. But I don't believe that Eldad, I, when, I read, when I read through it, which I admit was quick, um, it's not that long a book, but, um, but I don't remember him making reference to the, uh, to the Queen of Sheba story as being relevant to their origin. Diane. I wonder if you say, is, is it possible to believe that he could tell a story that was 
But what's the difference between the two? No, let me say, but, but what is the difference between the two? You're right, Diane raises the question of, well, we tell stories that are older than that in the Torah. If you're going to trust that, why can't you trust this? To which the answer would be, one is the element of divine origin, but the other is the element of error checking. Meaning, verbal traditions in general have a very good track record. Anthropologists have done numerous studies on societies which have verbal traditions and the way they're passed down over time. And repeatedly the studies show that verbal traditions do extremely well in their survival and for a very simple reason. You have to repeat it. And in repeating it, you get to hear it from somebody, you get to ask them questions, and it gets passed down very well. What we have, hang on, what we have with the Torah, though, has an added advantage, which is the fact that it is read and read publicly on an ongoing basis means if someone makes a mistake, if there's a mistake in the text, it's going to get caught. That's why we know we have Torah texts that we can attest to going back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right? And we can look at ours today, and you're struck by the remarkable similarity over a couple of thousand years. But the truth is, it's not so amazing when you realize we're just you know, copying it and checking it every single week in front of a group of people who are just eager to jump on you if you make a mistake. So the, um, this, is a very, this is a very good error-checking method. I don't know that Eldad Hadani's story, while it has the advantage of the verbal traditions have... I don't know that it has also that element of error checking, which I think is uh, is critical for the survival of the story. But you look at it, and it's just it sounds so fanciful. Yeah, the idea that we would just go there and impress the Ethiopians, and they would love us and embrace us as long as we're willing to not go to war against them, and they'll pay us tribute. It just makes us sound too good. That's you know that, that's the way it feels. No. Yeah, but Chutam is Shulash. Right. Ephraim, correct. Right, they get killed. So, Maybe of those, if not all of them, they wind up in the, uh, sort of in the, in the Ethiopia. Right. I mean, we can. Yeah. Moshe has a reason to go there. We can come up with all sorts of what ifs, but it's hard. It's hard. I think you have to admit that it's hard. I, the, um, it, it's, it, this is a difficult story to, to embrace. So let's talk about what happens here. First of all, in terms of the ten lost tribes and the argument that the ten lost tribes have scattered around the world and that they're going to return, because this is a bigger idea than just Eldaradani's story, the idea that there are lost tribes of Jews. But I grew up hearing people say in the, that, uh, that you know, there are Jews in China or Japan and that they are from this and that, uh, you know, of course, the Jews from India, you have the, uh, the various groups there. And some of them have this associated with them as well. So the story in number 12, I brought you here, but I'm not going to read the text inside, because I've already told it to you. That's the story of the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom, and their exile of the Jews from the northern kingdom, sending them to various lands. That's a biblical text that the ten tribes are exiled. Further, in number 13, we were already promised in Deuteronomy 
in source number 13, that in the future you shall return to Hashem your God. God will bring back your captives and have mercy upon you and gather you from among all of the nations to which God has scattered you. This is what we call Kibbutz Galuyot, the ingathering of the exiles. So there is such a, uh, a vision. Isaiah speaks of it in chapter 11, which is his chapter that speaks most visibly about the arrival of the Messiah. That's the one with the lion lying down with the wolf and all of that. No, lion by with the lamb. Lion and wolf is a different story. The uh, lion lying down with the lamb, that's there. And look at what he says. And on that day, God will again send forth his hand to acquire the remnant of his nation from Assyria, from Egypt, from Patros, from Ethiopia, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamat, from the islands of the sea. And some of them, not all of them, the um, Assyria we know, right? Assyria we, we, uh, we're aware of. Egypt we're aware of. Patros I don't remember. Sounds Greek, doesn't it? It sounds very Greek, no? They have, but Isaiah is long before then, so I don't know which one he's referring to. Um, Ethiopia, Elam and Shinar are both associated with different regions within Babylon. Shinar is some associate... Sorry? Ethiopia is listed there as Kush. Sorry, yes. Ethiopia there is, is Kush. Chavash is a name that also is associated with it later when Eldad writes about it in his day in the debate about, um, about Jews from there. They all call it Chavash. That's true. But here it's called Kush. Elam and Shinar are within Babylon. Shinar is Sumeria, I believe. The, um, and Hamad, I think, is in Syria, but I'm not 100% sure of that. And he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the scattered Israelites and the dispersed of Judea he shall collect from the four corners of the land. Here also you get, there's a Talmudic passage in the Jerusalem Talmud in Sanhedrin that mentions a river some of you may have heard of. In the Jerusalem Talmud it's called Sanbation. In other versions in the Midrash it's called Sam, with a man, Sanbation. Anyone ever hear of that? The river with the rocks. Right, it's a river that casts up rocks and boulders. You can't cross it every day of the week, except for Shabbat, and that's when the river rests. And they are on the other side of this uh, of this river. And it talks about these these uh, distant exiles and about their ultimate return. Now, number one, as I already mentioned. Some of them don't go into exile. It's not that all, every member of these tribes goes into exile. Further, you have a passage in source number 15 from the Talmud in which Rabbi Yochanan said, Jeremiah returned them. He brought them back to Israel. And Yoshiahu, Josiah, reigned over them. In other words, they're not lost anymore. Back in the days of the first temple, the ten tribes already came home. How do we know they returned? And they make a reference to a verse in Ezekiel, in Yechezkel. There is a mitzvah in the Torah called Yovel, the Jubilee year. In the 50th year, every 50 years, the land that a family owns as its ancestral plot, if it's been sold at some point in the last 50 years, goes back to the family. All slaves have to be freed. Even the slave who at the sabbat, not the sabbatical year, I'm sorry, even the slave who after six years said, I want to remain a slave, must be freed in the Jubilee year. That's in America on the Liberty Bell, write the text on it, proclaim liberty throughout the land. That's from that verse. The, um, so the Jubilee year is only a, an obligation when the Jews are actually living in their land and the tribes are all home. So the text here in the Talmud is bothered. Because Ezekiel said that 
in this upcoming temple, the, the, uh, the seller will not return to the sold item, meaning the land has to be returned to its original owner after the Jubilee year, after the Yovel year. And the Talmud's bothered because what do you mean? The tribes are all gone. Could Yovel have been nullified already when the prophet testified that it would eventually be nullified, that in the future it will be nullified, but right now it is not? Rather, this teaches that Jeremiah brought them back. Jeremiah must have brought back the tribes. So I have a text saying that actually they're not lost. The ten lost tribes have been found. You can call off the search. I don't know what's on the other side of the Sambachon, but it's not lost tribes. That's what this view says. There's another passage in the Talmud, which is, is more complicated than we're going to go into right now, which actually says, it's in Yivamot, that the ten lost tribes stop being Jewish. And when I say stop being Jewish, it's what most of us think can't happen within Judaism. We always say once a Jew, always a Jew. It doesn't make a difference. Not this passage in the Talmud. It says that actually they seized their connection to the Jewish people altogether from a familial perspective as well as a Jewish law perspective. They said, we're not part of you. And the sages said, you're not part of us. No longer are they Jewish. The Talmud is actually using that to try to solve a problem. The problem that they ask is, if there are ten lost tribes of Jews floating around out there, then what happens if a Jewish man or woman marries somebody they think isn't Jewish, but it turns out they actually are. They're just from these ten lost tribes. Now what do you do? You have a mess. And their answer is, it's no problem. The ten tribes aren't Jewish anymore. Don't worry about it. The, um, that's our, our, our solution to the problem. Again, it's a longer discussion, not for right now. But what I'm saying is, the whole idea of the ten lost tribes is not clear-cut. You have sources saying they're going to come back, and these are biblical sources. Deuteronomy, Isaiah, saying that God is going to bring back our scattered people. That doesn't have to be the ten lost tribes. That could just be the other two. But that's the conflict that you have between the sources, so much so that take a look at source number 16. A Mishnah, a core text of Jewish law, which brings me multiple points of view. The ten tribes will not return. Deuteronomy 29 says, And he cast them to another land like this day. Kayom hazeh. What does that mean, like this day? Just as this day goes and does not return, so they go and do not return according to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's view is, the ten lost tribes are gone, they're not coming back. Rabbi Eliezer said, no. The day grows dark, and then it's illuminated. Yeah, there are darker times during the day, the clouds, the fog, whatever it is, and then the sun shines. So the ten tribes for whom it has become dark will eventually have illumination. So you have a fundamental debate as to whether they're going to come back or not. But this whole idea that they're coming back is fundamentally vague, and therefore it leads us to doubt what this whole story is regarding the Ethiopian tribes. Whether they left when the Assyrians conquered them, or where they left in an earlier revolt against the whole split. Well, word comes in the ninth century, via Eldad Adani, that the tribe of Dun, at any rate, is alive and kicking, and maybe some others as well, in Ethiopia. There's a leader at the time, this is the period of the Ga'onim. The Jews at this time are led by in many ways, scholars who were the heads of religious academies in Babylon and North Africa. One of these leaders is named Rav Tzemach Gaon. Gaon meant the person of power. It was the leader. Take a look at source number 17. 
This is an article, Ethnographers, Rabbis, and Jewish Epistemology, the Case of the Ethiopian Jews. And, uh, and look at this statement. Eldad describes an independent Jewish kingdom in the mountains of Ethiopia whose customs resemble both Rabbinite and Karaite usage. Right? Some of the things they do sound like the Jewish law that everybody's familiar with in the 9th century. Some of them seem like they are Karaitic. The Karaites believed primarily in following the biblical text and did not believe in the right of the rabbis to interpret and extend. So some of it was Rabbinite, and some of it was Karaite, who lack the Talmud. They don't have this, uh, this tradition. The report of unfamiliar halachot, unfamiliar laws, aroused the sages of Kerwan, which is in North Africa, to question Eldad's authenticity. But Rav Tzemach Gaon of Sura, which is in Iraq, defended the book, pointing out that before the close of the Talmudic period, individual rabbis' rulings often differed from those which would become normative at a later date. They left before the closing of the Talmud, long before the closing of the Talmud. If they really left, when Eldad Hadani said they left, then they are gone for 1,200 years, give or take a century, before the Mishnah is canonized, let alone the full Talmud, which would be another 300 years after that. So, of course, it doesn't look like the Talmud. There were debates going on for a very long time. It makes sense. They had some things. They didn't have other things. So, Rabbi Tzemach Gaon takes the opinion that this is a legitimate tradition. So records Professor Don Seaman in his article, number 17. Rabbi Tzemach Gaon is at the time when this, when this book first emerges, when Eldad Adani comes out and is spreading this, this message. Subsequent Jewish travelers such as Benjamin of Tudela in the 12th century continued referring to independent Jews in the land of Cush, Cush being Ethiopia, as did the acclaimed letters of Prester John written by a Christian. So this idea that there are Jews living over in Ethiopia at that stage in history is just a novelty. In other words, it's not as though anyone is meeting these Ethiopian Jews. It's not as though anyone is asking the question of, may we marry the, uh, the Ethiopian Jews? It's just a curiosity, right? I mean, to, to a Jew living in, uh, in, in Babylon, right? Or to a Jew living in, uh, in Israel or anywhere at this time, there are much bigger considerations, right? At this point, they're dealing with the weakening of the empire in which all of the, uh, the in which all of their yeshivot exist and thrive and then that's followed by the crusades which gave us some very big headaches we weren't traveling down to Ethiopia however what changes everything is the slave trade because with the slave trade there are now Europeans who are bringing people from Africa as slaves and some of them are claiming Jewish heritage What's their status? Rabbi David Ibn Abi Zimra was an authority in, of Jewish law in Spain, also known as Radbaz, which is less of a mouthful. Uh, and he was faced with this as a practical question. The following story took place. There was a woman who was taken as a slave from Ethiopia. She claimed Jewish heritage. She ended up as a slave in Europe. It's a long story. But she had had a husband in Ethiopia. There was a massacre. 
it was claimed that all the men had been killed, right? The slave traders came in and they killed them and they took the women as, uh, as captives. So it was claimed that all the men were killed, but there's no evidence to the idea that her husband, her original husband, from, again, this Ethiopian tribe, is dead. She is brought to Europe. She is ultimately purchased by a Jew who has a child with her. And now the question is, what's the status of the child? You don't have proof that her first husband is dead. Right? Is this child, takes us right back to the Langer affair, is this child a mamzer? Is the question. So he needs to answer this question of how I view the status of the Ethiopians as well as how I view the status of their marriages. Their marriages don't look exactly like what we think of as a traditional Jewish wedding. Which isn't surprising, because they've been evolving, even as we've been evolving. And again, their departure, if Eldad Adani's account is correct, is more than a thousand years before the Mishnah is concluded. It's not shocking to think that there will be differences of opinion in terms of Jewish practice. Well, Radbaz deals with that question. Number one, the question of, are they Jewish? And number two, what's the status of their marriage and divorce? And what emerges in his responsum, the whole responsum is a longer story, but is that he takes Eldar Adani's story as true. And he says, they are Jewish. And Radbaz is not some obscure traveler. Radbaz is a critical authority in Jewish law, whose writings, 400 and 500 years later, remain very much a part of Jewish legal tradition. For example, he has a responsum dealing with an issue, which is a, it's really a longer discussion than for now, but his responsum uh, it deals with the question essentially of whether you are allowed to endanger your life physically, to undergo some kind of physical harm which could endanger you in order to save the life of somebody else. And it becomes a major part of the legal debate regarding kidney transplants in the 1970s. At a time when kidney transplants were considered more dangerous than they are today, the question was, are you allowed to endanger yourself in order to save the life of somebody else? People go back to our box. When he says, I think they're Jewish, that matters. And so we get to the modern era. Source number 18, Rabbi J. David Bleich reports this. In 1864, Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, a prominent rabbinic spokesman in Germany, issued a call for action in order to counteract missionary activity among the Falashas. Now, I should note, many of you are probably aware, Falasha is considered a derogatory term. It's a term that was used by others against the Ethiopian Jews. But this is 1972, and Rabbi Leich writes the article, and people were not aware of that. Falasha was the standard term that everybody used. I grew up hearing a song by a singer by the name of Mordechai ben David. It was a beautiful song about how all Jews are one and we're family and all that. He talks about meeting, a, uh, meeting someone from Addis Ababa, and Falasha was their name. And he's saying it in a positive way. He doesn't realize that it was actually a negative. So please don't hate Rabbi Leich for using the term Falasha. The... Um, but, what, but the, the point that is relevant here is that there's a call to counteract Christian missionaries who are trying to convert Ethiopian Jews. In other words, we think they're Jewish. This was followed by a fact-finding mission undertaken in 1867 by the noted Orientalist and Semitic scholar Yosef Halevi. Rabbi Avram Isaac Cook 
took the stance as well, that they are indeed Jewish. And 19, I brought you, there are several letters of Rabbi Cook that relate to this, but I just brought you one of them. And again, this is 1912 when he uses the term falashas, forgive him. Regarding a school teacher for the falashas, I think it would be possible to find a teacher of the type necessary in Israel, but before any practical proposal, one must of course know specifically what sort of knowledge the teacher must have, expertise in, but he supports the idea of sending people to teach them so that they will learn Judaism as we know it, and that they will be considered part of the Jewish people. So as of the beginning of the 20th century, Eldad Hadani's account is accepted. Now what I still want to talk about next week is what happens after that. Because in the beginning of the state, it looks like they are going to come to Israel. We will have an aliyah of the Ethiopian Jews, and the efforts suddenly cut off in 1957. And what I want to talk about is what happened between 1957 and 1984. So we're going to do that in the beginning next time. And then our last topic will be the, uh, the disengagement in, uh, in 2005. I will take one question. Yeah. That's a good question. You know what? I'm going to come back to it next week because I didn't prepare it enough to be able to speak properly on it. And you're right, it belongs. So I'll talk about the difference between their practices and ours next week. Thank you.